A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Brighten your day with a book. Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa from QuickBook Reviews. How are you all doing? Yes, that's right. We have one author interview, a long one. One author answers five questions in five minutes and five books to review. Are you okay, though? Let's just check in and make sure you're all right. If you're not doing so so well, I hope things improve for you soon. I've had a, a mixed week, I think we could say. So I was at a funeral and there was a chap there who was sort of ex- SAS military type who's become a personal trainer. So I was just just making conversation as you do, saying, what can I do? Because what I'm doing at the moment doesn't seem to be working. And he would say, well, it's just that you've hit a plateau and you, you know, you've got to do more and you've got to push yourself, blah, blah, blah. And then he looked at me very seriously and leant in and said in a very earnest voice, you don't eat chocolate, do you? In the way that chocolate clearly to him is a toxin, is poison. And I admit, I'm sorry, friends, I was going to tell a lie. I was going to say, no, chocolate, what's that? You know, no, never. Because he was just like Mr. Fitness. But I didn't get round to that because a friend of mine popped her head round the side and said, oh, she does, she does, she eats a lot of it. And I was just like, thanks. Thanks ever so much. So, uh, yeah. And yeah, he he didn't want to take me on as a client. So that's fine. I don't I don't need that. But I have got an idea to avoid this plateau, which I'll tell you about next week if it works. Knowing me, it won't work at all. But we'll see. Anyway, let's get on to the books. Got some great books to talk to you about today. So We've got Claire McIntosh back to talk to us about her latest book, The Last Party. And this is a long interview with Claire. She came on for five minutes last a uh, few weeks ago. So it'd be good to talk to her in depth about this book. Then we've got the wonderful Cara Hunter on with her latest book and the Adam Fowley. I always struggle. Do I call it Foley or Fowley? So I'll say both. Foley, Fowley, detective series, Hope to Die. And Cara's coming on to answer five questions in five minutes. Then we've got Leech by Hiran Enns. Ennis? Enns? I apologise. I did research it and I couldn't find the answer to that one. But uh, that's a, for those of you that like the more horror books, you're going to want to hear about that. Then we've got Idol by Louise O'Neill and Fleshman is in Trouble by Taffy Brodesser Ackner. I think I have mispronounced every name wrong in this episode, but I've started. So let's let's carry on and see how bad it can get. OK, The Last Party by Claire McIntosh. Now, I've told you about this book before, but let's just have a little old recap. On New Year's Eve, Rhys Lloyd has a house full of guests. His lakeside holiday homes are a success and he's generously invited the village to drink champagne with their wealthy new neighbours. This will be the party to end all parties, but not everyone is there to celebrate. By midnight, Rhys will be floating dead in the freezing waters of the lake. On New Year's Day, DC Fionn Morgan has a village full of suspects. The tiny community is her home, so the suspects are her neighbours, friends and family, and Fionn has her own secrets to protect. With a lie uncovered at every turn, soon the question isn't who wanted Rhys dead, but who finally killed him. In a village with this many secrets, a murder is just the beginning. Let's do first sentence. New Year's Day. Fionn Morgan scans the prone figure beside her for signs of life. The man is tall, with broad shoulders and black hair cropped close to his skull. On the back of his neck, where a shirt collar might lie, is a small tattooed name. 
Harris. I love this book. I thought it was so good, so well written. I love the fact that it's introducing this female detective in, and it's going to be part of a series. I love that. that Claire hasn't done a series before as far as I'm aware of, so I was really interested in that. Bravo, an excellent book. Kept me kept me reading, kept me wondering who it was. I kept changing my view on who it was and what had happened. Didn't guess it. Yeah, excellent. But enough of that. Let's talk to Claire now. So Claire McIntosh, whose latest book is The Last Party, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me back. Good to have you back. Now, we need to talk about this book. I mean, just the setting alone. Often I see in the Sunday newspapers, lakeside developments advertised. And I always think, oh, that looks a wonderful place to stay. Uh, I, I just thought it's a great idea for the setting of this book. How, how did you get that initial concept? So this is this is my lockdown book. Every, everyone has, every writer has a lockdown uh. book. Um, and I live in North Wales. I live in Snowdonia in a very small town with a very big lake, um, the, the largest natural lake in, um, in Wales, in fact. And I swim in this lake. And one of the things I do in, in our town is I organise the New Year's Day swim, uh, which when I started organising it had about five people um, shivering by the side of the lake and now has <laughs> around 100 uh, and it's one of my favourite days of the year. And I came back from this New Year's Day swim a few years ago, just before the pandemic. And um, it had been so beautiful because the mountain was sort of high above the lake and the mist was floating on the surface of the water. And while I was in the lake and everyone was shouting, Happy New Year, um, I was thinking, what would happen if a body floated through the water? Because this is what, what it's as like, you as you do, this is what it's like when, you know, you're an ex-police officer and you're a crime writer and you spend your life thinking about terrible things that might happen. So I came back home and I, I thought, oh, what would happen? So that was the kind of start of the story. And then I, um, when we were locked down and I was obviously spending a lot a lot more time at, at, uh, at home than normal. Um, and I I wanted to write about the local area um, where I've lived for about six years and I really love it. And one of the things that I find um, extraordinary about the lake is the way it looks different every day. You know, it, it's just an incredibly atmospheric place to, to be. And something that had happened during the course of the pandemic was that people became really, really aware of the fact that Wales is not England. Now, I know that sounds really obvious, but you'd be surprised. Obviously, everybody in, in Wales knows that Wales is not England, but not all English people really appreciate that that difference. And it became really, really stark because suddenly we had different laws to people across the border and suddenly we were getting people coming from England when they shouldn't have been because England wasn't in lockdown and we were and they'd come for the day and uh, and there were all these tensions and people getting terribly terribly cross with each other and I just I, I found myself really fascinated by the idea that you could just kind of walk across a border and be in a different country and be governed by different rules um and so what I did was I created a fictional town and a fictional lake. And I put my border right down the middle of this lake, which is, you know, a real sort of bit of artistic license because that, that's not where the border sits at all. But I was really inspired by um, uh, uh, TV, Scandi Noir, like the bridge, the tunnel, you know, this idea of a cross-border investigation. And when I was in the police, just working, working from um, with, with another force is quite challenging. You know, if you have a crime that crosses a force border, it creates so many more challenges in, in terms of communications and intelligence sharing. So it, it felt like a really interesting setting. Um, so that was the start of the book. And then I met Fionn. Fionn Morgan kind of walked onto the page. And almost as soon as I met her, I thought this is a, a, not a standalone book. I think I'm I'm writing a series. And that must feel quite different for you because your books have been standalone before uh, and it's, 
it works so well but did it feel different to you embarking on a series no it didn't feel different until I started sort of getting to the final edits by which point I was I knew it was it was definitely a series I knew that I'd be writing you know book two and three that I was contracted to write them we were talking about it being a series you know publicly and then suddenly I felt under a bit of pressure and writing the second book has been significantly more challenging so I feel a little bit like I'm back at the beginning of my career despite the fact that I've had four you know successful standalones four or five successful standalones um suddenly I feel like I'm I'm a, a new writer again which is no bad thing you know it's uh, I think it's quite fun to discover a different side of your writing but I think it must be difficult because you don't know how much to reveal in book one and then to um keep for those future books as well the sort of the further character revelations and and it felt like a complete book to me it would work as a standalone I'm thrilled it's going to be a series but you're not left wanting in this book no and I I think um I think they have to be standalones as well I I, I think it's unfair to expect any reader to commit to an entire series and for that for those books to only make sense if you've read, you know, one to six. I, I want people to be able to pick up the seventh book in the series and feel that it's totally satisfying. And so for that reason, although there will be sort of links and, and relationships that, that continue from one book to another, I haven't got, for example, a kind of an overarching mystery that Fionn is trying to work out that's going to take 20 books to, to fathom. Um, because actually, I find that sort of thing frustrating uh, as, as a reader. And actually, as, as a writer, it's not, it's not what I want to be doing either. Um, so I, I think in terms of the series, it's more about the character's being familiar, the setting, the world, you know, that's what I wanted to, to stay with. Uh, and I am actually really enjoying returning to those characters now. And you talk about the location, uh, and I agree, it just added layers to the story. I mean, I'm in the position where I live on the border of England and Wales, but I'm on the English side. And during all the various different restrictions, we would have pubs whose part of their building would be in Wales and part of the building would be in England. And it would be a case of, well, which um, restrictions are you going to follow? And it, it did highlight to me as well the difference between those two areas. And for me, I found that fascinating, how that adds, as I say, an, another layer, another complication to the story. I, I really enjoyed that. And I... Um you know, I was slightly wary, I suppose, of writing a book set in Wales um, because I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not Welsh, I'm English. Um, we've lived here a number of years. My children are all Welsh speaking. Uh, they're educated um, through the medium of Welsh. Um, but I am, I'm English. But what the last party has enabled me to do and what the fictional setting has enabled me to do is sort of write um, from both sides, I suppose, you know, look, looking at both the the way English people feel that close to a border, the way Welsh people feel, um, and you know, and, and ultimately the way these fictional characters happen to feel. I'm not I'm not speaking for anyone else. I'm I'm sort of representing a view of a cast of characters that I've created, and and it works so well. Did you always know who? who had done what or did that change as you were writing it? It changed. Yeah, it changed. Oh. It was somebody completely different in the first draft. And actually the first draft is very, very different uh, as my first drafts always are. So I always throw away the first draft of a book and start again and, and uh, the structure and form. And often the viewpoints are very different. So... The, the big thing that happened actually in the course of of writing this, and I think it was perhaps the third draft that it happened in, was the structure of the novel changed. So I'd written it initially in a, a, a fairly sort of standard 
structure for a detective novel. So split across two timelines, one starting with the murder and following the police investigation as they work out what's happened, and the other one being in the past leading up to the murder. And that's a really conventional way to tell a a crime story, and there's nothing wrong with it at all. But it just it just lacked something. And it also meant that I couldn't reveal things when I wanted to reveal them because I was writing in a a linear fashion in both timelines. So what I did was I um, I, I had a a chance encounter with uh, or chance conversation with my neighbour who um, uh, used to own a poetry press. And he was talking to me about poetry and we were talking about palindromic poetry which um, is uh, these poets. So palindrome, as I'm sure everyone knows, is a a word um, or a sentence that can be read both forwards and backwards and has a different meaning if you you read it in different directions. And so a palindromic poem is one that you read from top to bottom and it means one thing, and then you read it from bottom to top and it means something completely different. And there are some incredible examples uh, you can find online. And I went away from this conversation and I was thinking about palindromes and I was thinking about reflections and the way uh, so that the lake in uh, the last party is called Klindrich, which means mirror lake. And I was thinking about how you sort of see something reflected in the surface of a lake, but that's not what lies underneath it. So I was kind of playing around with all this imagery. And then I thought, well, I can I can do this in in a book. I, I can use a palindromic structure to tell this novel. So I can go backwards for the first half of the novel and then I can go forwards again. So I was kind of, you know, a bit like when you jump into water and you go right the way down and then you bounce off the bottom and come back back up again. Mm. So it's got this kind of almost V shape um, to, to the book. And what we'll have in the second half is we will see all those same scenes again reflected back at the first half, but slightly distorted. So what we thought was the truth in in the first half, actually, we're going to see it from someone else's perspective. And it's going to be a little bit different. Um, and uh, I don't know if you ever saw the affair, but uh, that there's a definite kind of a, a little hint of uh, of the affair in this, in the way that we'll see the same scene from two different people's perspectives. Um, and that really, that sort of change, it was a huge change, a big, big rewrite, but it really lifted the novel. And uh, that's when I started getting excited about it. That's a lot of writing and rewriting. That's a lot of words. It must be something that consumes you. Yeah, it does consume me. Yeah, I I think it's hard to live with a writer. I think, and I was talking last night to Gillian McAllister, with whom I did an event at Waterstones in Birmingham, and we both have a very similar writing process. We both throw away our first drafts, and we both agreed that we probably write somewhere in the region of 500,000 words for every book that we produce. So a book is roughly 100,000 words. uh, And we think we probably write five times that um, that gets thrown away. And and that's dedication. That's, um, yeah. Well, or it's or it's inefficiency. Um, (laughs) I'm not sure. No, it's it's part of the process. And if it produces these amazing books, then it's it's worth that that pain, I'm afraid. Uh, it's, it's worth doing it. OK, here are some quick fire questions for you to see what your answers are. Lakeside holiday home or seaside hotel? Lakeside. Lots of edits or no edits? Lots and lots. Book cover or book title? Oh, title. Audiobook or ebook? Audio. And the last one of these, bookshelves arranged by author or by colour? Author. Author, author, author. Do you know what? I love seeing people's rainbow shelves. Absolutely love it. I'd love to have rainbow shelves in my house, but I just can't because I also like to be able to find a book. (laughs) Yes, that's, uh, yeah, I have them done by rainbow. And my children, I said this before, but my children say, oh, you won't be able to find a book. And I say, right, tell me a book and I'll find it. And I I think the colour just sort of 
secures it in my mind as to where they where that they do be. look they do look beautiful I, I think they're they're really really lovely and I've just rearranged my shelves in my office um and I was really tempted to rainbow them but I just can't I can't bring myself to do it <laughs> no that's fair enough everybody I've asked so far always says uh by author not by color so I've I've not found a soulmate yet I'll keep searching <laughs> And then I just want to talk about you. I mean, you are such a successful writer. That must come with quite a bit of pressure. How do you cope with the expectations of your books being, you know, so high up there? It does It does come with pressure. But the funny thing is, is I, I think I would feel that pressure even if my books weren't successful but because I'm, I'm quite hard on myself and generally... Um, you know, it's become a bit of a joke thing, hasn't it, to say, oh, my biggest problem is I'm a perfectionist. Uh, but I think when you are a perfectionist and when you're very driven and when you um, perhaps, you know, perhaps are a bit hard on yourself, you're constantly pushing yourself to write better, to write more, to write faster, to write differently. You know, it, it feels like it's a constant challenge to to create something better than you know what's come before so I think I'd feel that anyway and my publishers are very good about not putting pressure on I feel more pressure now oddly with this new series than I have done with the last couple of books so I after I let you go my second book was really hard to write and actually um, I threw away a whole book after it had been edited after I let you go because it just wasn't it wasn't good enough so I see you which is my second book was always going to be my third book so I've got a bit of a history of throwing books away I did the same thing between I see you and I let you go did the same thing between after the end and hostage there's a whole book on my computer that won't be published so I do I do throw away a, a lot uh in that constant effort to try and you know produce something that I'm I'm proud of yeah, it's it's hard. It, it is hard. And I think all you can do really is just focus on writing the best possible book you can. And also, I try and look at my career as a, a sort of a long, big thing, not just an individual book, that there will be some books that do better than others, that there will be some books that, you know, people love and others that they don't. Uh, and it's interesting that that those books aren't always the same ones. So I have people write to me or come up to me at events and say, you know, I loved, loved I Let You Go. You know, didn't really enjoy Let Me Lie. And then the next person, Let Me Lie is my absolute favourite. You know, didn't really get into I Let You Go, but I adored Let Me Lie. And I think that's what's so brilliant about books is that they are subjective and it's totally OK to you know, love an author and perhaps love them for who they are and love their online presence and the way they interact with their readers. And and occasionally to think that one of their books isn't, you know, is, isn't for you, you can still support that author. And, you know, hopefully that's what my readers do. And I can imagine when you were working in the police force, writing was an escape from the, the job that you were doing. But I'm interested, is writing still that escape or is it more just sort of every day now yeah that's an interesting one because I um I, sp I was talking to another writer about this a writer who is who is is published but ha hasn't published a, a great deal and, and doesn't have a huge readership yet and they do a lot of um a lot of sort of writing for fun, morning pages, um, uh, creative writing that won't go anywhere, you know, but just fun writing. And we were talking about it and they said, uh, you know, what, what do you write for fun? And I thought nothing. I, I, I don't write for fun, um, which is a weird thing because I suppose the sort of the follow up to that would be to say, you know, I write for money um, and that's not why I write. But I write I write commissioned pieces. I you know I, I write books that are under contract. I write articles or short stories that have been commissioned. I can't remember the last time I wrote something 
that wasn't connected to work. So I might write something that isn't going to be published. I might write perhaps a, a letter from one of my characters to another as a sort of an exercise to get into that character, to loosen up a bit. But it's still part of, of my, my work. Um, I don't tend to write just for the love of writing because I might, if I'm going to write for the love of writing, I might as well write something that I'm actually, you know, I've got to deliver. And if you're writing 500,000 words for a book, that doesn't leave a lot of time for other writing. It doesn't really, no. Did you ever write when when you were doing that first book? You, that was still writing with the, with the aim of getting that book published. OK, that wasn't commissioned yet, but surely that was your goal. It was such a fantastic book, it, it seemed that way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was, it was a book that I wrote... Uh, in the hope that it would be published uh, and was and I was very sort of serious and, and committed to that goal um, I, I did I used to write just for the fun of writing and one of the um, the periods of time that I did that the most was when I was temping so when I was at university in the long summer holidays I would temp in offices so I'd do reception and switchboard and you know all sorts of secretarial type jobs and some of those jobs were busier than others and quite a lot of them particularly on reception there would be long periods of time when I had nothing to do and so I could read or or I could write and I used to write um sort of character I suppose monologues in a way I was at the time I was really obsessed with um uh, Alan Bennett's Talking Heads, which I used to watch obsessively. And what I loved about them was the way the the character would be saying one thing, but we, the audience, could read the subtext. And it was often very poignant. Um, and I loved that sort of double layer to something. And so I would sit on reception and I would write these kind of monologues, these pen pictures, and there was no place for them. They weren't part of a story. They weren't part of a novel. They were like vignettes. They were snapshots in time of a fictional character's life. And it was it was a training ground, really, for, for being a novelist. Bef long before I'd joined the police, before I'd thought about wanting to, to be a serious writer, I was just playing around with it yes those little gems were there from the very beginning if if you could go back to when you were writing the first book and just whisper something in your ear what would you whisper I don't know if I would I really don't because I I think I'd worry it would change something mm. about that book like if if someone had whispered to me that this book's going to sell a million copies or it's going to sell in it's going to be translated to 40 different languages I think it would have paralysed me. And actually, the beauty of writing a first novel is that there isn't any of that pressure. There's just you and your story. So I would keep my mouth shut and just let her get on with it because it did all right. <laughs> it certainly did. And no doubt the last party is going to do all right as well. So Claire McIntosh, whose latest book is The Last Party. Thank you so very much. Thank you. And so coming up, we've got Cara Hunter answering five questions in five minutes about her latest book, Hope to Die, and three more book reviews. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and 365 day returns.
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Now let's turn to this latest book. Love this. Hope to Die by Cara Hunter. If you haven't heard of Cara's books and you like detective crime novels, then you need to give yourself a little knock on the head. Nothing too hurtful, but you need to know about these. These are great. The whole series have just been phenomenal. She's definitely an autobi author for me. I wasn't aware that this latest book had been published, so I was very surprised when I had a little email from a website that I shall not name saying, did you know there's this book by this author? I was like, oh my goodness, how exciting. So let us, let me tell you what this book is about. Here's the blurb. Midnight, a call out to an isolated farm on the outskirts of Oxford, a body shot at point blank range in the kitchen. It looks like a burglary gone wrong, but DI Adam Fowley suspects there's something more to it. When the police discover a connection to a high profile case from years ago involving a child's murder and an alleged miscarriage of justice, the press go wild. Suddenly, Fowler's team are under more scrutiny than ever before. And when you dig up the past, you're sure to find a few skeletons. <laughs> Here we go. It's a perfect night for it. No cloud and barely any moonlight. Though cold comes with clear skies, they said on the radio it could hit freezing tonight. But he's done this before and he's come prepared. The backpack is digging into one shoulder and he hoists it a little higher and then starts off again. His stride is sure despite the dark. He knows where he's going. He did the full recce a couple of days ago. All the same, it's hard, slow going at night, especially with all this kit. But he made allowances for that, and in any case, this game is all about patience. The right time, the right place, the right conditions. Ah, it's a great opening. It's a great book. I didn't even read the blurb when I sat down to read it. I was just like, it's a Cara Hunter. I'm reading it. Lovely. Excellent. Superb. You don't have to have read any of the other books. And Cara brilliantly and helpfully sets out a little explanation about each main character, which is helpful. Their name, their age, who they're married to, whether they've got children, their personality. It just really helps whether you've read every book or you're new to it. You'll you'll enjoy it. So there we go. Let's talk to Cara now. So Cara Hunter, author of the latest book, Hope to Die. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm very, very happy to be here. Thank you. I am very happy to see you. I really am. I'm going to start you off gently. Can you describe your book to us in less than a minute? Oh, I can probably do that. This is the sixth um, Adam Fawley book and we find him attending what looks like a burglary that's gone wrong in an isolated house at the back of uh, Oxford. It's a couple of old people who live there but somehow or other they've ended up with a man dead in their kitchen and the first question that Adam is asking himself is why didn't they call 999? So we go on from there, everything starts to unravel, we start to find out who these people are, who this man in the kitchen might actually be. Um, and the thing that's, I, for me anyway, is most interesting about the whole story is that it started out as being, being inspired by a real life case, uh, a, a very famous case in Australia um, early in, in this century. So 
Very interesting case as well, but I'm not going to say too much about that because it's got lots of spoilers if I do. And what I love about your books is, although I've read every one, of course I read quite a few books and so the old memories start slipping. And I love the fact that at the beginning of each book, you just gently outline the characters and just remind me. So uh, when I, I hit the ground running straight away and... I am so great. I wish more authors did that. So I thank you so much for that. It's interesting, actually, because um, when I first started doing that, so many people said to me, wow, this is a brilliant new idea. I, I really love it. And I'm just sitting here as a, an ex-student of English literature thinking, well, this has been done for about 300 years. It's so common. You know, it's, it's not a new idea at all. And I didn't want to take, take credit for it. But many, many Victorian novels, especially ones with big, long casts, have lists of characters at the beginning. So so I was just taking an old idea and making it work for a new type of novel, I suppose. But a list of characters often puts me off because I think, oh, no, I've got to memorise all these characters' names True. and their relationship, whereas yours is more sort of gentle. You give a page normally to each character. It just, you, yes, you're kinder to me and my little memory, <laughs> I think. Well, it's quite useful for me as well, actually. <laughs> <laughs> the next question, which is your favourite major and your favourite minor character in this book? The ones you enjoyed writing the most? Major character, I think, has to be Chloe Sargent. And there's a story behind that, as you probably know from reading the notes at the back. Chloe Sargent was the name I, I was given by somebody who won a charity auction. Uh, to have a character name in one of my books. And it was her mum who, who'd, who'd won the auction. It was her, the daughter's name, Chloe. And I just love the name Chloe Sargent, especially for, for a police book. But of course, Chloe herself, um, I've met her now, which was an amazing moment, actually. She's such a lovely person. Um, but she's been struggling with a very serious case of cancer and has been really brave about it. And I mean, she's one of these people who's totally inspiring to meet. Uh, you know, you, you get no sense of negativity about her. She's so positive about life and doing her best to, to deal with this really difficult situation. So I started with her and I thought, well, Chloe Sargent, have to put her in the police team with a name like Sargent. It's just such a you know, lighthearted thing to do. Um, and she just grew and grew and grew and grew yeah. as a character. And she was just brilliant to write. She had so much good stuff about her, a really strong character, really resilient. She just became a major character. She wasn't intended to be one at the beginning. I don't tend to give... Um, you know names like that to big characters I tend to give charity names and things like that to quite small characters uh, but she just turned into a major character in her own right and I loved it because it meant she, her, her character was coming alive and that's always a good sign so that's my favorite uh, my favorite major was going to be minor but major character as for minor characters I suppose so they're harder uh, to sort of get yeah. affectionate towards because you don't see so much of them. But there is, I suppose, what I would have to answer is that my best friend actually makes a cameo appearance in this book. Um, you may not remember, but there's there's a, a tall, striking-looking New Zealander who plays real tennis with Chloe Sargent. And that's actually my friend Sarah, uh, who was from New Zealand. Oh, <laughs> and she plays lovely. real tennis. Oh. <laughs> and she was glad to be in as that sort of character and not one of the other Yeah, she loved it. I yeah, imagine. she she lives in Oxford and and she plays real tennis and, and yeah, it was it was lovely to be able to bring those two together actually. So thank you. That was a really nice question. <laughs> oh, great. Okay, the next question. What three feelings do you want us to feel as we're reading it? I'll go first with mine to give you a moment. I felt committed. I was committed to you because you're an autobi author for me. So I, I tr straight in, I was there. I felt thrilled with the journey and the characters and the events and the revelations as they happened. And as always with your book, I was surprised at the ending, but I won't say. Well, surprised at the ending is definitely something I want for every single book I write. I want, uh, I want each twist and obviously the final one to leave people feeling oh my god and then but of course because you need them to feel that they haven't been cheated in some way by you just introducing a character out of the blue you know I'm on page 400 and they think mm. well hang on a minute how can how can I have solved that because you know this this person's only just turned up so you need to feel um, as a reader that the, the writer has been fair with you and hasn't tricked you so I want people to be surprised but not feel that they've been hoodwinked in any way 
Um, I also want them to be, I suppose, I'm trying to think of one word for this, something like breathless, I suppose, and I want them to be turning the pages uh, and wanting mm. to know what, what happens. So there's not really one word for that, but but that's that's the feeling I want. I want people to to not want to put it down. Um, that's the that's the best thing. And um, and I suppose I just I also want people to feel um, involved. I suppose is a good word that they're part of the team that's that's actually solving the case. Um, that's why I put all the the uh, maps and the body maps and the, and um, all of the pieces of transcript and documents in there because I want people to feel that they're a detective. And the loveliest feedback is when people say, I feel like I'm one of the team. I'm looking over their shoulders. I've got all the same stuff they've got and I'm trying to pull it together. And I'm thinking, is there something in this body map that I should be looking at that, that will tell me what's really going on? So I love doing that and, and actually sort of hiding the Easter eggs, hiding all of the little clues is one of the great pleasures of writing any, any sort of crime fiction. But particularly when you're giving people things like documents and they don't know whether there's something in there. So, so um, yeah, involved, I suppose, is a good word for that, to be part of the process. Wonderful. Next question. What food and drink did you consume the most when you were writing this particular book? <laughs> oh, golly. Yeah. <laughs> Probably white wine. <laughs> white wine and chocolate. Is that really boring? Yeah. <laughs> Typical, well, it clearly works. Typical crime, yeah. crime writer diet. <laughs> <laughs> when we're talking chocolate, can we be a bit more specific, though? What's your go-to chocolate when you're writing? Dark chocolate. Um, oh, healthy. Dark chocolate um, with caramel, ideally. Oh, yes. Good combination. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. And your last question. What's been the most memorable moment so far in your writing career? Oh, golly. Um, I think it has to be meeting Richard and Judy. Uh, which was back, I mean, I'd been a Richard and Judy book twice, um, but the second time was The Whole Truth and it was all during lockdown. So we did all of the stuff, the podcast type stuff on Zoom. Um, but the first time for Close to Home, which of course was right at the beginning. So it was, everything was sort of happening at once and it was just the most incredible roller coaster few months. But but I actually met them that time. So I actually got to sit on the sofa and have my photograph taken and talk to them. And that's the sort of moment where you're sitting here thinking, am I actually here? I mean, um, should I be pinching myself? Because I'm not sure I'm actually dreaming this or not. So I think that was, yeah, that has to be the most memorable moment. And it does have such an impact on book sales. I mean, it's incredible, really. It does. Oh, it does. It's it's such a, you know, it's it was incredible. It was that particular book, of course, being a debut. No one knew who I was. No one knew what the book was about. You know, it was it was complete, um, you know, virgin territory, really, uh, for readers. So to have that sort of endorsement, to have that sort of support through the whole Richard and Judy set up, not just them, but you know, through Smiths and everything else, that made just every difference in the world to to what happened to that book. And what a wonderful way to start a series. I will, I will always be grateful to them for that. And we're always grateful to you because not only was it a great first book, you keep delivering them and, and that's what matters to us. So Cara Hunter, whose latest book is Hope to Die, thank you so very much. Thank you so much, Philippa. That was Hope to Die by Cara Hunter. And now let's move on to Leech by Here and End. This is a book that's going to fulfil the desires and hopes of all you horror fans. So listen to this. For the Interprovincial Medical Institute, to grow is to survive. For hundreds of years, they've done this by taking root in young minds, possessing them and shaping them into doctors, slowly replacing every human practitioner of science. But now it appears they have competition. Following the mysterious death of one of their doctors in an isolated castle to the far north, a replacement is sent to investigate. Yet upon arrival, they find not a simple cause of death for the doctor, but a parasite. And in the dark depths of the castle, already a pit of lies and secrets, it's spreading. With the other inhabitants trapped inside by the freezing winter winds, these two enemies will battle for ultimate control. The question is not who will make it out alive, but what? Let's do the first sentence of this book. The sight of this old train car saddens me, though I cannot quite articulate why. There is something unnameable about the rattling of the empty wooden seats, so like the pews of a deserted church that puts me in a lonely humour. It is an unusual feeling, since I have never in my life been alone. 
Okay, I do find scary stuff hard and I don't know why I was attracted to this book, but I was and I'm glad that it did. It's a great book. It's got the story, the unravelling. You feel all sort of, oh, I'm shivering to myself as I'm remembering it. It's got a story. Um, It's well written. It draws you in. And is it one that made me (laughs) want to watch Disney films afterwards to recover? Yes, it really did. Um, it's, It's got all the sort of the gory things. It's, um, I don't know, it's just very well written, very well done. If you're looking for a horror, this is this is what you need to, to be reading. And thank you to Book Break for, for my copy. Um, yes, excellent. There we go. On to the next one. The next one, Idol by Louise O'Neill. I actually got a signed book from the Hay Festival of this, but I didn't get to see Louise speak. I had heard about this book and I'd ummed and ahed about it. I'd ummed and ahed because although the blurb sounded just as my sort of thing, some of the reviews weren't as positive. So you know when you think, oh, that sounds great, but is it... I'll tell you what I thought before I read this blurb, just to save you waiting. I loved it. I did. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was great. Is it because I went in with lower expectations? I don't know. We'll never know. But this was another one of my holiday reads. And yeah, it was great. Okay, here we go. For Samantha Miller's young fans, her girls, she's everything they want to be. She's an oracle telling them how to live their lives, how to be happy, how to find and honour their truth. And her career is booming. She's just hit three million followers. Her new book, Shaste, has gone straight to the top of the bestseller list and she's appearing at sellout events. Determined to speak her truth and bear all to her adoring fans, she's written an essay about her sexual awakening as a teenager with her female best friend, Lisa. She's never told a soul, but now she's telling the world the essay goes viral. But then, years since they last spoke, Lisa gets in touch to say that she doesn't remember it that way at all. Her memory of that night is far darker. It's Sam's word against Lisa's. So who gets to tell the story? Whose truth is really a lie? Uh, let's do first sentence. OK, what I love about it with the chariot, the the chapters is at the beginning it gives you a date but it also gives you how many followers she's got on Instagram which is very telling so 3rd of January 2022 2,868,635 followers Samantha watched the girls as they filed into the event hall tilting their heads back to stare at the ornate vaulted ceiling with its oversized chandeliers dripping silver and blue crystals they elbowed one another in the ribs mouths open as if to say look at that can you believe it her publisher hadn't wanted to hire this space for her book launch they said it was a waste of money money that could be used more efficiently for marketing subway posters targeted ads on instagram and she had simply waited until they'd stopped arguing waving their excel sheets and projected budgets like white flags pitching each other, cheaper venues, and when they'd worn themselves out, she smiled sweetly and said, it has to be the ballroom, I'm afraid. My girls deserve the best. I did really enjoy this. I think if you are not a social media person, and it's fair to say I do love a bit of social media, but if you're not, you might not get it. You might not get the sort of the adoration of an of an idol and how when things happen good or bad that can have an effect on your followers and just it's I wouldn't want to be this sort of idol on social media I think it would be so hard it's like something that you have to the plates you have to keep spinning and all of that yeah but it was really interesting to read it I thought the story was good it went in ways I hadn't expected uh yeah excellent bravo look forward to the next one well done Louise O'Neill I liked your book, Idol, and I'm very glad I got a signed copy. And the final book today, Fleshman is in Trouble by Taffy Brodesser Ackner. Mm, this was a book I was given on holiday. So I had my pile of books and was working my way through them. And then I stopped to talk to someone and said, oh, I see you're reading that book. What do you think? And she said, I really sort of struggled with it to begin with. But then once it got going, I enjoyed it. So I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. She said, oh, If you'd like, I'll leave you the copy when I'm finished. How kind is that? So here is the blurb. 
Finally free from his nightmare marriage, Toby Fleshman is ready for a life of online dating and weekend-only parental duties. But as he optimistically looks to a future that is wildly different to the one he imagined, his life turns upside down as his ex-wife, Rachel, suddenly disappears. As Toby tries to discover what happened, his tidy narrative of a spurned husband is his sole consolation. But if he ever wants to find Rachel and understand what really happened to his marriage, he's going to have to consider consider that he might not have seen it all that clearly in the first place. <clears throat> right, let's go to your first sentence. Toby Fleshman awoke one morning inside the city he'd lived in all his adult life and which was suddenly somehow now crawling with women who wanted him. Not just any women, but women who were self-actualised and independent and knew what they wanted. Women who weren't needy or insecure or self-doubting like the long-ago prospects of his long-gone youth, meaning the women he had thought of as prospects but who had never given him even a first glance. No, these were women who were motivated and available and interesting and interested and exciting and excited. Um, yeah, I do think it gives you a sort of it's a post-divorce dating look. And, and I think that was interesting about the going on the dating apps and a unique perspective. I thought it was human. It it was good, but it wasn't great. And I kept because I in my head I was like, oh, this is going to start off so and then it's going to build up and wow. And it didn't deliver that for me. And again, I know I always say this, but that probably comes down to expectations. Thank you, lovely person who gave me this book. I'm so grateful and I'm going to pass it on as well. It wasn't my favourite, I'm afraid. And it, I didn't enjoy it as much as I thought I would. But I'm still very grateful for, for the opportunity. So there we go. Those are your five books. So we've had The Last Party by Claire McIntosh. And Claire came on to do the full interview. Then we had Hope to Die by Cara Hunter. And Cara very kindly answered five questions in five minutes. Then we had Leech by Hiron Ends. Then we had Idol by Louisa Neal. And finally, Fleshman is in Trouble by... If I can see the name, I can now. Taffy, Brodesser, Ackner. There you go. Five books. Oh, my goodness. I can't wait to talk to you next week. Yes, I will update you on the plateauing exercise issue, um, if I remember. But also, I, I've i got a great author to talk to you about next week. So that's exciting. But there we go. I'm going to send you on your way. Just I uh, hope everything's OK. Just keep going. And I'll speak to you very soon. Take care now. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. That's enough books, said no one, ever. See you again soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.